Hello, hello, hello everyone. I'm Rob Wolf, and welcome to episode number 78 of Unfermettable, where we take a look at some of the less heralded myths in our beloved franchise's quirky history, as to us, every player who dons the orange and blue is, in some way, unfermettable. Going to take a look at someone short and sweet today, uh, figuratively and kind of literally in the sense of their Mets career. A very brief Met who had one whole hit as a New York Met, but made sure to go out in style, uh, launching it over the wall for a home run. There's a fun YouTube video I found, uh, Met One Home Run Wonders. There's a lot of uh, unformidable types in it. Also a lot of very memorable home runs by starting pitchers, including the Bartolo Colon home run. Uh, but this gentleman didn't even figure into that video compilation, which I was kind of hoping to see. I do remember the game, but it was quite some time ago. Um, I can't help thinking it's... Uh, I'm sure there are others you know, that I'm missing or others can point out to me, but close as I could find to the Mets' very own Moonlight Graham. Uh, this is a player with 11 total Major League Baseball at-bats and one hit. Uh, someone who came to the Mets as a footnote or a name or a trade line in baseball reference and one of the more heralded trades in the franchise's history. Got that brief cup of coffee at the tail end of the franchise's most sustained run of excellence in 1990, Sir Chris Jellick. I mean, he's so obscure, I'm not 100% sure if I remember if it's pronounced Jellick or Yellick, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Jellick, and apologies if it is not. Christopher John Jellick was born December 16th, 1963, exactly 11 years and one day prior to your humble narrator here in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which, incidentally, my friend and Bethlehem native Shelley insists is the real Allentown of uh, Billy Joel fame, and seems very bitter that the song is about Allentown and not Bethlehem and Bethlehem Steel, I guess. I've pointed out to her that Bethlehem probably doesn't have quite as many good rhyming possibilities as Allentown, but that does not seem to assuage her. But I digress. Uh, athletics was clearly in Chris Jellick's genes. His mom, Cynthia, played basketball at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, winning Pitt Panthers Woman Athlete of the Year in 1959. And Chris's dad, Ralph, was a running back for the Pitt Panthers, uh, starring there, appearing in two bowl games uh, for, the, for Pittsburgh. Ralph was actually drafted by the Steelers in the 10th round, uh, I don't know how many rounds they had back then, of the 1957 draft, in a draft class that included future Pro Football Hall of Famer Len Dawson. Chris starred in both baseball and football at high school in Mount Lebanon. He quarterbacked two uh, Quad A championships. I am ignorant as to what Quad A means, but this is what I read. And Chris would uh, follow the family, follow in the family footsteps, uh, signing on at the alma mater of Pittsburgh, where he'd play baseball as well as football for the Pitt Panthers. He was the backup quarterback as well as the regular punter during his time at Pittsburgh. And in a nice, very full circle moment um, in 1984, 
Len Dawson was announcing a 1984 game between the Panthers and the South Carolina Gamecocks. When and when Chris threw a touchdown pass, uh, Dawson remarked uh, on air during the game that the first touchdown pass I ever threw in professional football with the Steelers, that kid's father caught. But it was baseball that was in Chris's future as the Kansas City Royals would draft him in the second round of the 1985 MLB June draft. Out of pit, obviously. Uh, he would look okay, but not spectacular in the minor leagues. Uh, he played catcher primarily in college, and he was drafted as a catching prospect. But Jelich was quickly overshadowed and passed on the depth chart in the Royals org by their fourth-round pick in that draft, Mike McFarlane. And as an organization, the Royals were clearly concerned about their catching situation, as they had an aging Jim Sunberg behind the plate. He was in his mid-30s. He was their primary catcher in their 85 World Championship season, but was clearly fading. McFarlane started to become the new heir apparent in the minors, and this made Jelich Jelich expendable, um, but the, you know both of them were too young to catch at any rate, so the Royals were looking to bring on someone to hold down the fort circa 1986-1987. And in 1986, another uh, a major league backup catcher made a brief uh, name for himself, or made a brief impression as, um, as a New York Met. The Mets were, of course, in 1986 cruising towards the division title when Gary Carter went down with an injury a partial ligament tear of his left thumb. Apocryphally, uh, this injury, or at least I believe in Gary Carter's opinion, uh, cost him the 1986 National League MVP. Probably debatable, but you know, back then in particular, it more often than not went to players on winning teams. No one was more winning than the Mets back then. Mike Scott, pro- I think, had the highest war in the National League that year, but pitchers never won. I mean, if Gooden didn't win in 1985. But at any rate, uh, I digress. Um, I just know there was a line of thinking that you know Carter was you know the last piece to that championship puzzle and was so important. But when Ed Hearn held down the fort adroitly during Carter's injury, Hearn hit 275, uh, played, by all accounts, excellent defense, and the Mets went... Eight and three in Hearn starts. It perhaps, you know, shot, shown a light on the fact that it was such a team effort and may have made Carter look less indispensable and less valuable. Um, at any rate, um, perhaps Hearn impressed the Royals at well because at the end of spring training 1987, they decided to acquire Hearn from the Mets to become their primary catcher. The price in that trade would be the out-of-favor Chris Jelich um, and a wild pitcher with poor control that he had not yet harnessed, a future star, David Cohn. Cohn's baseball story is, of course, incredibly well-known. Hearn's story probably deserves its own podcast, and having just looked a little bit into it for this one, I expect I will do one in the future. Um, as he unfortunately appeared in only nine more games with the Royals than Jelich would in his brief Mets career, as a shoulder injury would end Hearn's 1987 a mere six games into the season. But while Cohn would quickly become the prize of that trade, 
the Mets envision Jelich as a potential utility player, uh, moving him from behind the plate in 1987 in the minors to just someone who played around the diamond, playing him at the corner infield and outfield spots. Uh, his strength, if you look at his minor league numbers, was seemed to be good strike zone awareness. He walked more than he struck out in many minor league seasons, did not have a high strikeout rate either. Absent any scouting, you know, I can't find any reports on him. Uh, just looking at the numbers, he strikes me as a player where if he had more speed, could have you know excelled as a defensive catcher or someone who could have stuck as a catcher or someone who could have played up the middle. He probably could have made it as a utility player, uh, particularly in that era of baseball where you could get by with less pop at those positions, but he just didn't quite have the pop for someone who was largely playing at the corner spots. And he probably seemed destined to be a career minor leaguer, but in his sixth full year in the minors in 1990, Jelic had his strongest season to date, recording an 843 OPS in AAA Tidewater. Whether it was a reward for that or just because of pure, purely deserved it, as the roster is expanded to 40, as or could it be expanded to 40 as they did in those days? Don't know exactly how many players the Mets called up, but Chris Jelich finally got the call to the majors in September of 1990. Of course, the Mets were neck and neck with the upstart Pittsburgh Pirates at that time. Uh, the team entered September of 1990. A half with a half-game lead over Pittsburgh for the division title. After a slow start to the season and the shocking termination of Davey Johnson and moving Bud Harrelson to the manager's position, the Mets seemed to take off, uh, kind of exploded middle of the season, surged back to first place. And, you know, it wasn't the dreaded, hated Cardinals that we were tussling with this time. It was this young pirate team uh, I thought that we had going to put them in the rearview mirror and once again thought that the inevitable Mets A's World Series that everyone was expecting for three years running was finally going to come to fruition and that our Gooden, Cone, Fernandez, Viola starting pitching staff would lead us to that second world championship we'd all been expecting since 1986. But it was a tight pennant race, so... There wasn't much playing time for most of those late-season call-ups, at least at first. The Pirates swept three games from the Mets in early September, and the Mets, who had been playing catch-up much of the year, uh, were all of a sudden playing catch-up again, and would never again quite get back into first place. Uh, they It was a pennant race. They did again close to within one game on September 19th, but that would be as close as they would get. In my memory, most of my bitterness is, you know, the Cardinals is 87, 88, 85, 85 and 88, 87, 88. But looking through some of the box scores of these September games and seeing some of those names, the Andy Van Slykes and Mike Lavaliers, I was getting a little bitter again. I, I forgot, forgot how much this one stung and, you know, probably stings more in retrospect as I realized it was, it would be the last pennant race I would see the Mets in for a close to a decade. Ah, hindsight. At any rate, on Sunday, September 30th, the Mets were, I think, four out with four to play, and 
they were closing the season with a three-game series in Pittsburgh, so there was the outside chance that if the Mets won their season finale at Shea and the Pirates lost, uh, they would be alive for that last weekend in Pittsburgh. But Doug Drabeck was completing a shutout of the Cardinals, and the Pirates were clinching the division as the Mets were playing the Cubs at Shea. It became pretty clear that the season series finale of those last three games in October which seemed like they were going to be oh-so-meaningful, would not be meaningful at all. But for the younger players and call-ups like Jelich, where this was devastating for me and for Met fans, uh, this was an opportunity, as the veteran-laden team would largely rest and not play over that last weekend. Jelich would get three starts in left field. I'm, I'm picturing Kevin McReynolds packing his bags pretty much the second the Mets got eliminated and booking his duck hunting excursions or whatever it was he did. At any rate, on September 30th, 1990, Chris Jelich would make his Major League debut. Uh, the Mets were down 2-1 to one to the Cubs in the bottom of the fifth, and he would pinch hit for Daryl Boston, striking out swinging against the Cubs' Steve Wilson. The Mets would take a, ultimately take a 5-2 lead in the game. I forget the exact timing of it, if the Pirates won before the Met game ended, or vice versa. But uh, the game kind of was a bit of a microcosm of the late season for the Mets. Uh, Howard Johnson had been moved to shortstop, I think, because Kevin Elster was injured. Uh, he made two errors late in the game that helped the Cubs rally and win 6-5, to five. so the Pirates lost, the Pirates won, and the Mets lost, so either way, the team was getting eliminated and would have to make the trip to Pittsburgh for those three final meaningless games of the season. But they would not be meaningless to Jelic, who would get to start three games in left field in Pittsburgh, basically his, well, not his hometown, but home of his alma mater and close to his family, where many family and friends could come and see him play. On October 1st, 1990, he'd get his first career start, as mentioned, in left field, batting sixth in the lineup for the Mets. He would go 0 for 4 with a pair of strikeouts against the Pirates' Zane Smith and a couple of relievers. In a game in which the player he was traded with, David Cohn, would complete an incredible season, uh, pitching nine innings, striking out 12, allowing only three hits, capping off a 14-10 and 10 year with a 3.23 ERA. Jelich would also start game two of the series and go 0 for 2 before being pinch hit four in the fifth inning by Keith Hughes leaving Jelic 0 for 7 with three strikeouts over his first three professional games. Mets would lose game 161, leaving Doc Gooden with only 19 wins on the 1990 season. Uh, in game 162, the Mets would help Frank Viola, would see Frank Viola win his 20th game of the year. Uh, he'd cross the milestone that Doc couldn't. Most importantly to our story, Jelich would go 0 for 3 in his first plate appearances, a pair of ground outs, and a pop out. 0 for 10 through his first 10 Major League plate appearances. With the Mets ahead 4 to 3 in the top of the 8th, Jelich would lead off the inning against the Pirates' Doug Bear. And on a 3 1 pitch, Jelich would line a fly ball deep over the left center field wall for his first. And only career major league hit, his first and only 
career major league home run. And in a nice little touch, again, this was in his hometown, and you know the Pirates had won and clinched and were heading to the playoffs, and Jelich got a pretty nice ovation from the crowd, from what I read from a game recap, and from his friends and family and supporters who were at the game. Jelich would get released by the Mets after the 1990 season and would sign with the Padres organization. He spent 91 to 93 in the Padres org, but would never get up to the majors again. He was primarily in AAA Vegas, a couple of times getting demoted down to AA Wichita. He'd kind of bounce back and forth between them. And after the 1993 season, at the age of 29, he decided to hang it up and retire from professional baseball. So for his career, uh, no need to get too fancy. One for 11, uh, one hit, one home run, one RBI, a pair of runs scored, an uh, 091 on base percentage, but a 364 slugging percentage, 455 OPS. According to Baseball Reference, that was good for a 0.0 war. 0.1 offensive war, negative 0.1 defensive war. But unlike Moonlight Graham, he dented the stat line, and he dented it in a memorable way of interesting quirks and things I read about Jelich in putting this podcast together. Uh, he's one of three NCAA Division 1A punters to play Major League Baseball. The other two were Andy Tracy, and I had totally forgotten this, Darren Erstad. I always randomly liked Darren Erstad, or I think overrated him in fantasy baseball or something along those lines. And then according to a 2011 article I read about Jelich, uh, so I don't know if this is still statistically true and don't quite have the time to check, but uh, according to the research done in this one article, uh, according to Baseball Almanac, you know, there are many players who finished their career with one hit, uh, 44 players who homered in their final at bat as of 2011, of those 44 players who homered in their final at bat, Jelich is the only one whose only career hit was a home run that came in his final at bat. So that was a roundabout statement. But yes, the the only player to homer for his first major league hit in his final at bat. Or at least that was true as of 2011, uh, based on the, re- if, if anyone is aware of a player that I'm missing, you know, love to hear about it. Please let me know. Like a lot of players, or perhaps people even in this digital age, it was kind of hard to track down much information about Jelich. He didn't really stay in professional baseball. In fact, pretty much all I could find out about him, his post-baseball life, uh, came from an article about the passing of his father, Ralph, who again had that notable uh, football career or college football career at Pitt, and it mentioned his sons and family, and that Chris, uh, as of 2018, was a salesperson for the Quaker Chemical Corporation in Wyandotte, Michigan. But hopefully it doesn't get much more unformidable than homering in your final major league at bat in front of your friends and family in Pittsburgh, and etching yourself as a quirky little footnote in Mets lore and Mets history. There you have it, the unformidable Chris Jelich. Thanks for taking the time to listen to Unformidable. Please go to AmazonAvenue.com for more Mets-related content. You can follow Amazon Avenue on all the social medias, and you can find this 
and all of our amazing pods wherever you get your podcasts. Original music by Bunga. I'm on Twitter at WolfRR, W-O-L-F-F-R-R, and the show is at Unformidable. Thank you, and as always, let's go Mets!